What is enough to help students with? Yeah, that's a really tough question because what might be enough for one student might not be for the next. But I think that this is where you're assessing the advancing questions come into play, that your assessing questions should really be focused on trying to make sense of what the student's current thinking is. And once that thinking becomes visible to you, then thinking about, so where is the student right now? Where is it that I ultimately want to go? And what is one question I could leave them to think about that's going to help move them forward? So that it's trying to think about the first thing I want to do with the student isn't just to ensure they get the right answer. I want to figure out how to get them think about to get their thinking in the right space. And then maybe you're listening to NCTM Lifetime Achievement Award recipient and co-author of one of the books we reference most often on this podcast, The Five Practices for Orchestrating Productive Mathematical Discussions. It's the wonderful Dr. Peg Smith. Listen in as we take a deep dive to unpack all five practices and you'll hear from Peg about the other two practices that she often references. You'll hear why the five practices are your roadmap to implementing high-level tasks, how you can use assessing questions and advancing questions in your classroom, and how you can get started with those five practices. But before we get to all of that, we have to do something super important. Hit that music. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce from tapintoteenminds.com. And I'm John Orr from mrorr-isageek.com. We are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of educators worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. Are you ready, John, to dive into this new episode? For sure, buddy. For sure. But before we dive in and get to our talk with Peg, we want to take a moment to say thanks to all of the math moment makers out there who have left us ratings and reviews on iTunes. Today, we want to share a five-star review from Sebashi9178356. Hopefully, those digits aren't her phone number. (laughs) Sebashi9178356 says... Changing the way we teach math. So excited to have found this podcast. I've been slowly transforming the way I teach math over the last few years, and I'm continually looking for ways to grow as an educator and to make my math teaching more effective. So much great guidance and information here. Thanks for sharing your journey and knowledge. We want to thank Sebashi for leaving this review on iTunes, and we're hoping that you'll take a moment to not only hit that subscribe button right now in whatever platform you're listening from, but also to do us a huge favor and leave us a rating. And if you have time, just a couple minutes in a review. Before we begin, the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast is excited to bring you the Math Moments with Corwin Mathematics book giveaway. That's right. We'll be giving away 10 books from Corwin Mathematics, including Peg's book, Five Practices in Practice, the middle school edition. Plus, you'll receive special Corwin discounts and digital downloads just for entering the draw. You can get in on that giveaway by visiting makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway by Wednesday July 31st, 2019. Listening after July 31st, 2019? No sweat. We are always running a giveaway and you can access it through that same link. So head to makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway and you'll see the current giveaway going on. You might even want to bookmark that link. Don't miss out. Dive in to makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. All right, the time has come. It's time to jump into our conversation with Dr. Peg Smith. Hi there, Peg. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Um, I think that your book, The Five Practices, is actually one of the books that we have mentioned the most over all of the episodes on the show. So we're really excited to have you. How are you doing tonight? I'm great. Thank you. I'm just thrilled to be here talking with you about the book. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Peg, uh, could you do us a favor and help our listeners just understand a little bit about yourself? I think most of our listeners, as, as Kyle said, have probably heard us mention the book, but we want to kind of dive into, you know, a little bit about you. Fill us in a little bit about your background and maybe what got you started on this math education journey. Okay. Well, so as a student in K-12, I was always pretty good at math. And when I was taking high school geometry in 10th grade, I found that while I loved it, many of my friends and peers didn't share my affinity for geometry. And I found myself providing a lot of support for my friends in completing their geometry homework. And (laughs) what I came to realize is that not everybody loved math and appreciated it in the same way I did. And it was really at that moment that I decided that I wanted to be a math teacher. So I never really wavered from that position. I'm wondering if you were to think back to your own educational experience. So you sort of had, you felt like you enjoyed math sort of out of the box. I'm wondering in your own experience, how do you remember mathematics being taught? Like, was it just something that just sort of like you were, we'll call it like maybe a luckier one who could make some of those connections. They sort of almost happened before your eyes. Or do you remember much about that? Or was it just kind of thinking about math was something that you just enjoyed doing and you didn't really think too much about it? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess I just always really enjoyed numbers. And as I said, particularly geometry, I loved the visual aspect of geometry and that you could see relationships. I don't think there was a particular moment necessarily My mother actually was very good in math, although she did not go to college, and she always really encouraged me, so it just seemed really natural to try to do my best. Peg, one of the things that we ask all of our guests is, since the title of the podcast is Making Math Moments Matter, you let us in on a few kind of moments already about your past, but we always ask our guests, like, what's a very memorable moment from math class? So thinking back to you as a student, but it also could have been you as an educator, like something that sticks with you, like you're going to always remember this moment about math class as a student or as an educator, would you mind sharing like what would be that most memorable moment for you? I really hate to say this. I've been asked this before and I really don't have one. So like you're like, there's so many moments or it's kind of like they... I don't know. Maybe I'm not understanding the kind of moment you're looking for. I mean, I certainly have had aha moments, but not necessarily in math class. Okay, I get what you're saying. Like, uh, for example, like my moment that kind of always sticks with me when someone talks to me about math class or when someone says, what sticks with you? Like when someone says math class, something that pops in my brain all the time is a moment where I... You know, I used to get these stickers for math class, like in the fourth grade. And, you know, these were the puffy stickers, the stickers that when you close the book, they don't close all the way. They, they stick off the page. And I got these stickers because my teacher, my fourth grade teacher was like, here, do these multiplying questions. Just do these multiplying questions. And I was like, I love doing these multiplying questions because I got a sticker for doing a ton of them. And, you know, this moment is sticking with me. And we called these the Master Multiplier Awards. And it sticks with me because I remember that sticker. But part of this, why this sticks with me is my mom only a few months ago pulled out this book that had the stickers in it. But then she also pulled out the test from inside that book that also showed this terrible result, this result of not actually knowing what I was doing. But I was getting all these stickers because I was just pumping out math questions. But when it was, you know, push came to shove, I didn't actually, I think, know what I was doing. I was just kind of following some rules or procedures the teacher had set up for me. And when I think back to that, I'm like, that's a moment sticks with me. And, you know, it has a lot of meaning of like, what was I really doing in my math class if I was getting these stickers, but I wasn't really understanding. So that's kind of a moment that sticks with me when I think about math class. So it could be good. It could be bad. You know, like what's a, I don't want to push the issue here with you, but I don't know, maybe do you have a moment that's not necessarily similar to mine, but just something that kind of just pops in your brain? Well, yeah, actually sharing your moment stimulated a thought that I had. When I was in elementary school, I can't tell you what grade level, but we had to memorize our multiplication facts from two to nine. And 
so, you know, two times two all the way up to two times nine, all the way up to nine times nine. And you had to be able to stand up to your desk and you had to be able to say them all in two minutes. Oh, geez. And I prided myself on the fact that I could do it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. But years later, when I was teaching seventh grade, I thought, what exactly did that prove? (laughs) I think a lot of us and those especially who went into teaching specifically to teach mathematics. I know that sometimes elementary teachers might go into teaching and they might really enjoy teaching literacy and maybe not so much math or vice versa. I know for those who tend to go into teaching wanting to teach math, oftentimes we were those kids that actually found success doing those types of activities. And that's what's sort of given us this confidence, right? And for me, it was inflated confidence. Like I thought or I was told I was good at math. And what I realized later for me, my sort of big aha moment was in university when a professor told me that you don't know anything about math. And it was rude and it was a little bit uh, harsh. But in reality, when I looked back on it after I began teaching, I realized that everything he said was actually true. And it really made me start to reflect just like you did when you went back and said, is that what we want kids to believe being good at math is, right, is just this ability to regurgitate. So it's interesting, you know, we sort of relate on that front. So I'm wondering, can you help us understand? And, you know, again, we already mentioned earlier that we love talking about your book, The Five Practices for Orchestrating Productive Mathematical Discussions. And we're wondering, maybe if you can give us a little bit of the backstory, like what was going on in your own classroom that made you start to craft these five practices, like maybe did it sort of come up over time? Was it like little pieces? Was it that you were trying to figure out how you could deliver your lessons better? Could you give us a little bit of the backstory? Oh, absolutely. It really started at the time the five practices, I don't know what the word is, were created. I was already teaching at the University of Pittsburgh and working with pre-service teachers. And I was part of a research project where some of my colleagues and I were trying to study what teachers learned from engaging in what I've come to call practice-based teacher education. So I had created this course on proportional reasoning, and the students in the class were working on their master's degrees. They were both elementary and secondary teachers in the same classroom, and We were using some of the materials we had created earlier, some cases that focused on teachers implementing high-level tasks in middle school classrooms. And each of the sessions involved engaging my students in solving mathematical tasks and talking about instruction and so on. And we were studying this, so we had all kinds of measures of teachers, pre- and post-knowledge, their participation, and so on. So we video recorded every one of my class sessions. And then afterwards, I would sit around with a team of researchers, and we would analyze what was going on in the class. And one of the things that Mary Kay Stein noticed was that there was a certain pattern to the way I was organizing discussions. So she started naming the things that she saw me repeatedly doing, like watching the students as they were working and deciding who to call on and sort of asking questions and so on. So after looking at many episodes of this, um, she said, I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I was just doing what seemed very natural to me, sort of instinctive. You know, I was trying to figure out what they were thinking so I could bring it into the discussion. And she said, well, what are you writing down while you're doing that? Well, I had, you know, worked out the tasks in advance and I was trying to see if I had been able to anticipate solutions. So from that, we started trying to name the things that I was doing and the five practices were born. (laughs) (laughs) So they actually emerged out of my own teaching. Then our question became, wow, this is something that we can name. I wonder if it's something you can teach. I'm wondering if it's something that the students in your class actually are aware of or could be made aware of. 
So then we started trying to see whether they could articulate what was happening. And actually, they could. (laughs) Peg, we would love for you to, you know, we've mentioned the book many times, but for the listeners who may be hearing this for the first time, or maybe this is the first episode they've ever listened to, would you mind running through each of the five practices, like what you name them, and then what each of those basically entail for uh, just to give everybody the same kind of background before we move forward? Sure. So there are five practices. The first one is anticipating. And anticipating refers to thinking through in advance of the lesson all the ways you think students are likely to approach or solve the task. So the key here is to think beyond your own way of solving the problem and to think about how students are likely to think about it based on their prior knowledge and experience. And in addition to anticipating actual approaches or strategies, then thinking about the particular questions that you might ask students who produce those strategies or approaches that would help you assess what it is they understand, and then questions that would allow you to advance them beyond where they currently are. So anticipating is something that one does prior to ever setting foot in the classroom and really immersing yourself in the task. Now, in your mind, and I know that's the first of the five practices, like I'm hearing you, and what just resonated with me is just this idea specifically around the questions you might ask students who produce specific strategies. And and John and I often say that this is like one, what we believe, one of the most important steps just from the perspective of just getting yourself ready for what you might see, and then also really taking away that sort of improvisation that we would typically have to do during a lesson when we're caught off guard. And of course, we're still going to be caught off guard at times. You know, we can't always anticipate everything, but to have this sort of big bag with you coming into class, know that, hey, wait a second, I might see this, I might see this, I might, and when I do see this one right here, I've thought it through so well that I can help that student move forward in their thinking. I'm wondering, do you have in your mind sort of like a time range that a teacher might expect that they might dedicate to this anticipating stage? In my experience, what has been most productive in anticipating is for two or more teachers to sit down and do it together. Because I think what happens is if you try to do it by yourself, by your own knowledge and experiences and ways of thinking about it. And perhaps more than anything else, I hear teachers tell me, I can only solve it one way. So even spending, you know, half an hour talking to to one or two other people about it is likely to be way more productive than spending a longer amount of time by yourself. I've even been encouraging teachers to, if you don't have anyone to talk to about it, post a problem that you're going to do on your Facebook page or on NCTM's, you know, my NCTM, or tweet it out to some of the people that you are in contact with. Anything to get a wider range of ways of thinking about it, because I think that that is really key. What ends up happening is that if you're not prepared for lots of different things to happen, then when they do happen, you end up providing the kind of help that gets students past whatever their difficulty might be, but doesn't really advance their learning of mathematics. Peg, uh, you've done a great job outlining the anticipation stage for us. Could you move into what the next practice would be? Yeah, the next practice is monitoring. And monitoring is actually the practice of really listening and watching students while they're working on a task and intervening as needed in order to provide support for students to make progress. So this practice actually takes place during instruction, but again, it's something that you can begin to plan for by preparing those solutions and questions in advance, putting them on what I've come to refer to as a monitoring chart, and literally, as you're walking around the room, making notes on the chart 
regarding what you're seeing. What are kids thinking? Which solutions are being produced and who is producing them? So that you can really collect on really one piece of paper sort of what is happening mathematically in your room as students are working on this particular task. Something I really like about, you know, how you're articulating this and in particular, this idea of the monitoring chart is it really connects nicely with a lot of what people are reading and sharing about just pedagogical documentation in general. But this is very specific to math class and it really provides math teachers an opportunity to kind of take something that oftentimes is presented in more of a general sense, right? Just in general, we're going to collect some pedagogical documentation based on the conversations and observations of our students in class. And you're really nestling it in a nice spot here so that teachers aren't just sort of monitoring at random times, but more at a very precise time. And you've set it up nicely with all of the anticipating stage. And I think what's really useful about the monitoring chart too, I think one way to think about it is it's really great formative assessment data. It's really a snapshot of where students in your class are at this particular day and time. And while you're ultimately going to use that data to make decisions about the discussion at the end of this particular class you're teaching, the data also becomes really important when you start thinking about what kind of strategies is this student using? What kind of progress am I seeing over time in their ability to move from concrete to more abstract representation. So there's all kinds of things that you can see. You might look at students who aren't doing as well as you'd hoped and think that maybe you ought to rearrange the groups based on what their group has produced or a particular class. So there's all kinds of things that you might actually learn from the data beyond the immediate use for the discussion. I think when I first uh, learned of the practices and, you know, read the book, I think I overlooked the monitoring stage because I remember thinking, well, this is the stage of their work and I'm going to walk around and do what I would normally do. And, you know, I think I struggled early on with like, how much help do I give them? Or when the group is like really struggling, like I really want them to kind of produce something so that we can connect later on. But I used to have trouble with that, like, when do I step in? Do I help them too much? Do I help them not enough? Do you have any good tips for uh, teachers who are also maybe struggling with that? And what is enough to help students with? Yeah, that's a really tough question because what might be enough for one student might not be for the next. But I think that this is where you're assessing and advancing questions come into play, that your assessing questions should really be focused on trying to make sense of what the student's current thinking is. And once that thinking becomes visible to you, then thinking about, so where is the student right now? Where is it that I ultimately want to go? And what is one question I could leave them to think about that's going to help move them forward? So that it's trying to think about the first thing I want to do with the student isn't just to ensure they get the right answer. I want to figure out how to get them think about to get their thinking in the right space, and then maybe thinking incrementally. So let me ask you this question. I'm going to come back and check in on you, and then I'm going to ask you another one. Those are some really great tips because I think what helped me later on was being very clear on what learning goal I wanted to bring out in that particular task. Sometimes we pick a task because, oh, this looks engaging and we want to see what they'll do. But it became very clear that we would, in order to bring what you want to get out of this lesson, you have to know precisely what the learning goal target is for you in in your class or that particular student. So when I became more precise on that, I think that helped me shape the questions that I could ask my students to bring out. Well, in fact, that is the key. And it's kind of a historical artifact. But the truth of the matter is there aren't five practices, there are seven. And I have been known to call them zero sub one and zero sub two. You really have to begin this entire process by setting a clear goal for what you want students to learn as a result of engaging in a lesson, and then selecting a task, high-level task, that has the potential to accomplish what you want to accomplish. And you really can't even begin anticipating unless you're clear about 
what you want to come out of the lesson and then to keep that in mind all the time. Right. And I'm so happy that you kind of brought us back to the zero sub one, zero sub two. And something that I was thinking as well, even just thinking about assessing questions versus advancing questions and, you know, how important it is. And we mentioned this quite a bit is this idea of really trying to listen to what students are saying so we can better understand their thinking. And I love how you have essentially categorized the type of question two different ways because, you know, I have a habit of catching myself asking advancing questions most often, but I don't necessarily know where the student is now. It's like I'm making a guess if I don't actually ask a question that will allow the student to clearly articulate what they're currently thinking and sort of like their current strategy, right? Like if we make too many assumptions and we just jump straight to the advancing questions, this may or may not work for that particular student. Because if I didn't understand what they currently know or are thinking, then my advancing question may not be the right one for that student. Yeah, that's exactly right. And sometimes we look at students' written work and We assume that they understand what we understand about it, and nine times out of ten, that might not be true. (laughs) That's probably the cause of frustration in so many of our math students is when you're giving the advancement question and they're not ready for it or they're not understanding it. I'd love to keep talking, before we move on to the third one, keep talking about your task selection. That's very interesting to me. Like, Like when we're using the five practices structure, can we just use any tasks for that? Do you have some opinions on like what makes a good task? Could you fill us in a little bit about task selection? Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here. And I've got just a quick message specifically for our district level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. Yeah, I have a few opinions about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I knew you would. I knew you would. <laughs> um, well, one of the things that we learned early on in, in our research was, funny as it sounds, all tasks are not created equal. And they provide different opportunities for students to think and reason. And so the first thing is the task you select depends upon what your goal is for student learning. So if you want students to engage in thinking, reasoning, and problem solving, then you need what we've called a high-level task. And if you're going to take the time to plan the kind of five practices discussion that we're talking about, you really want to pick what we've called a doing mathematics task. So doing mathematics task is a task that requires thinking and reasoning, but the hallmark of the task is that there's no prescribed or implied pathway available to students that they could use to solve. And and that ultimately, you know, some people call it a rich task, you know, some call it a low floor, high ceiling, but ultimately at the end, it doesn't look like what I remember in my math classroom quite a bit, which was, hey, that task looks an awful lot like what I did in the examples, <laughs> right? Like it's like something that's going to sort of push me to have to go, wait a second, what's going on here? And to essentially tinker through and try to use some of the tools that are in my tool belt in order for me to actually do some of that learning and sort of some of that discovery on my own or in my group? Yeah, I think that in more traditional, I'm going to say traditional textbooks, you have 
like word problems and even they might even call them thinking problems at the end of the chapter. But in a lot of those cases, you can look back and see an example problem that's going to help you solve it. I would call those procedures without connections problems, meaning that there's a procedure you can use. You just have to find it or remember it, and then you have to apply it. You really don't have to understand much, and there's little left to figure out. If you want students to really engage in thinking, then you've got to find a task that requires them to do so. And one of the caveats is that there are a lot of tasks that I might consider to be high-level tasks, but if the student has previously done six of the same type, then it no longer has the same opportunity for learning. It's like it's lacking that cognitive demand, right? And it's lacking that productive struggle. Exactly. So this is very much related to productive struggle. You want a task that's going to cause students some cognitive dissidence. Do you have a, I don't know, I'm put, I guess I'm putting you on the spot here, but do you have a quick example of what you could describe as a high level task versus not? Like we've kind of hinted on a few, but maybe like one that you could even transform into a high level task. Do you have maybe something that you could share? Okay, so I can give you an example of a high level task. I'm trying to think if I've got one on the tip of my tongue I can transform for you. Yeah, here's an example. I'm going to actually pull out one of my handy <laughs> Yeah, no problem, no problem. So imagine a problem that you could find in almost any textbook, something um, I call this the fun tease task. So fun tease is offering a 30% discount on all merchandise. Find the amount of discount on a t-shirt that was originally priced at $16. So I would call that a low-level task. It probably would appear. Mm-hmm. I've seen um, that in the book. In a book. <laughs> <laughs> After. Like six in every book. Right, exactly. So, so I modified that task in the following way. So I said, Funtees is offering a 30% discount on all merchandise. Find the amount of discount on a t-shirt that was originally priced at $16. Okay, that's exactly the same problem. And then I added. Suppose the t-shirt was originally priced at $17, $18, $19, $20, Describe the amount of discount on a t-shirt at each of these prices. And then write a number sentence that describes the amount of discount you'll receive on any t-shirt that is offered at a 30% discount. Explain why this works. So definitely more moving parts to it, a lot more to think about, and really, you know, an opportunity for students to actually investigate the mathematics and sort of look and seek the patterns rather than sort of go find the pattern that, you know, someone told me (laughs) in a note or in a lesson, right? Yeah, I'm just imagining like student, like I'm doing my anticipation stage right now on that. And uh, I'm imagining how many different ways students can tackle that. Like you could have students just apply a procedure on each one of those. But I can also imagine students thinking about like, what is the difference between the 16 and the 17? Like that extra dollar, like how many more cents do I just add to that to account for or subtract from that, you know, to get the discount. So, you know, I'm thinking this is a great uh, modification to that original task. So one of the things that modification does is instead of having it just be one opportunity to do a multiplication, it really provides the same opportunity to do what the original task intended, but it's also really trying to begin to move you to algebraic reasoning and generalizing. So even if you calculated every one of those things, you still would have to step back and ask yourself what's going on and what would a general case look like? I feel like, you know, you deserve not only the Lifetime Achievement (laughs) Medal, but also a medal for the podcast for having to pull that out of thin air on the fly when John asked you. So uh, bravo to you for that. I'm wondering if we could move into the third or should I call it the fifth of seven practices, if we include zero A and B, the selecting stage. Can you help us sort of frame that out for those who are listening at home? Yeah. So selecting is the process of deciding what solutions you want to have shared during the whole class discussion because of the mathematics that's embedded in them. So that the selection is based 
on trying to get specific mathematical ideas that are the target of your lesson on the table. I'm a big fan of this for sure. And one thing that, you know, it helped me do in my class when my students were working in the room and, you know, I have my students kind of working vertically up at the boards most of the time at this stage. And, and what I really enjoyed about this was I had done so many group work tasks where students would do the solution. And then I would say, okay, group one, present your solution. And I would just go around the room and not actually think about the math that I want to showcase. And everyone would just present theirs. And, you know, the third group would say, well, I've shared the same as them. Like we did the same thing. And I really appreciate the nuance that this part of your practices brings about in the classroom. One of the things that I have seen teachers do so often was ask the question, who wants to go next? And I have seen that There can be times when that works out just fine, but more times than not, the teacher ends up with a student explaining something that the teacher doesn't fully understand or that is so far off point, they can't bring it back to what they really wanted to try to accomplish. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, do us this huge solid. Uh, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. I see that and, and kind of speaking like from the same experience John has had where, you know, I sort of turned my, the end of my lesson into essentially show and tell. And the group that was speaking probably got something out of it, but a lot of the other students sort of, they didn't know what the intent was. They weren't really interested at that point. And, you know, I really like the idea of selecting that handful of student work or student solutions that are going to actually allow you to elicit certain mathematical ideas, the ones that you had selected in that zero step, right? Or that zero stage. I'm wondering, like, what about, you know, I'm thinking of a teacher who, you know, imagine right now you're listening at home and you just had a student in your class solve this task in a really, really unique way, or at least a unique way to that teacher where they went, whoa, I'm not sure what happened there. Do you have any like strategies for how that teacher could figure out how I could select student work that's going to help me get to the goal I have for the lesson and and, and really help me in the later stages, which I know you'll help us with the connecting stage. But what about that student who did do it in a unique way? What might I do in order to ensure that that student doesn't feel as though their solution is subpar or it's not, I'm using bunny or saying like, it's not the right way or the correct way or the efficient way. Like what might a teacher say to that student in order to still like value or validate their thinking? Uh, Do you have any suggestions or strategies? Well, I think the first thing is that If you've anticipated a number of solutions and questions to ask, then that should free you up cognitively to deal with the solutions that you hadn't anticipated. So the first thing I would do is really try to understand what the student had done. What did you do? What's going on here? How are you thinking about it? Those sorts of questions. And if in the short amount of time you have, you can actually convince yourself that this is a legitimate solution, then you might want to include it as part of what gets presented. But if you can't, I would simply say to the student, you know, I've never seen this before. It's really interesting. And I really want to think about it more before we share it with everybody else. And then I would literally work on it. And if I thought it was viable, I'd bring it back the next day. I'm so happy that I asked you that question because in my mind, I was picturing this idea of like maybe talking to that student after class or to the side. But something I didn't really consider was, as you mentioned, if we've spent that time 
actually anticipating those solution strategies. And if I, in my mind, have, you know, at least a general idea of like which strategies kind of are, you know, before this one and this one comes a little after in the progression or in that continuum that really like you said gives you that that cognitive freedom that you know it allows me to maybe spend more time with this other student rather than me trying to essentially figure out everyone's solution on the fly like doing all that ad libbing as i go i've put in all that effort ahead of time so maybe that will happen less often in my classroom where a student's solution one that i didn't anticipate actually causes me you know to throw me off or anything like that but then you still have this opportunity to say you know what I'll talk to you after maybe, you know, right near the end of class or when we get to some purposeful practice, I want to sit down and understand your thinking better. But it, it sounds to me like, you know, that scenario would probably go down significantly if I'm not having to do that with every single student that I'm walking around the classroom and having a conversation with. So thank you so much for that. You know, Kyle, what I'm thinking too is because you did all those anticipation stage, like think about if you didn't do the anticipation stage and yeah, you'd be hitting every group going, what did you do? I have to now understand what you did instead of being able to just recognize it um, when you're walking around and seeing you like, okay, quickly, you can see the work being done and categorize that as which solution that is. Like if you had not done any of those anticipation stage, you'd be spending the rest of the, you know, the class just trying to figure all of that out. And then you would be probably overwhelmed before you get into the next stage, which is the sequencing stage. So the fourth stage, Peg, being the sequencing stage, do you have some common ways you might sequence? Yeah, I think the key here is to, I always think about it as trying to develop a coherent storyline so that there's a beginning, middle and end, but that it all adds up to something so that the first solution that you have presented should be one that everybody could reasonably access. So that if there's a variety of solutions that might include something fairly concrete, like a drawing or a model, and then something very abstract, like an equation, that you would want to start with the more concrete, because it's likely more students would be able to follow along the discussion, even if it isn't a solution that they created. So sometimes I think about moving from concrete to more abstract. Even when you don't make things explicit, students can figure things out like you always pick sort of the simplest one or the least sophisticated one first. So that if I go first, you're really telling me I'm not pick me first again. (laughs) And exactly. So what I've come to say when I got caught doing that was yours is just the absolute easiest to understand. And I know everybody will. Now that probably works better with pre-service teachers than it does with high school students. The other approach that I think um, can be very useful too is starting with the solution that you saw the most frequently in the class. You know, if, if half the class is doing it a particular way, start with that one because students will have access to it and students will immediately feel validated because it looks like theirs and they may be more open to considering other strategies once they know they're right. Yeah, that's great. And John and I often talk about this idea of sort of starting with that, you know, most accessible solution. But as you mentioned, students can definitely pick up on that. And I think right there too, I think it's worth us mentioning and being very explicit that, you know, we want to make sure that students understand that we value a variety of solution strategies. So even if we are like, let's say a student does call us on and says, you often are picking the whatever they want to call it, if they use the word simplest or, you know, the most basic, or, you know, sometimes they use different terms to describe those more accessible solutions that everyone can understand. I think what's really important is that we be cautious when we're assessing students, especially like in the evaluation stage, where what I hear teachers saying is like, so is a student who's showing their thinking more abstractly, like, is that worth more as a mark? And I always try to make sure that teachers see that I want students to be able to actually show me in a variety of ways. So if a student can only show it abstractly, but they actually can't show it or model it in any other way, then that's not 
really that much better than a student who's showing it using a very visual or a concrete representation. Like we want them to be fully proficient. And in doing so, we want them to be able to model their thinking in more than one way. So for me, I think it's great that you also mentioned this idea of showing a solution strategy that is most frequently seen, because that seems like a great way for me to kind of split it up. But then again, we just have to be cautious that we're showing kids that we value the variety of strategies and that we don't want to push them or force them towards an algorithm too quickly if they're not ready for it. So as we move into the fifth and final practice here, do you mind helping us put it all together and help us, I'm going to be cheesy here and say, help us make connections because this is the connecting stage. So help us and those at home understand uh, what is the connecting stage all about? The purpose of connecting is to avoid a situation that you actually described earlier. We don't want this to just be a show and tell of one solution after another with no connections made between them that doesn't really add up to something mathematically important. So that connecting is about two kinds of connections. It's about making connections between different strategies that students use. So for example, if students have produced tables, equations, graphs, and diagrams, I would want to have a discussion about how the information in the table is presented on the graph, where it appears in the equation, how the diagram shows that pictorially. And the other kind of connection is to the key mathematical ideas that are undergirding the lesson. So if I'm doing an algebra lesson and students are talking about slope and they've produced tables and graphs and equations, I want to know where's the slope in the table? And what does that mean when you're trying to find the constant difference? Where's the slope in the graph? How does that rate of change actually show up as you move from one point to the other? What's going on in the table? So that the key mathematical ideas are really very salient and public So at the end of the lesson, there's no question about what it was we were talking about today. And while students will explain their solutions and the teacher will ask questions that will help the connections, there may be some piece of this summing up that the teacher does provide, but it's not simply the teacher now telling you what it was you were supposed to learn. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's great that you pointed out because I think a lot of us, a lot of teachers kind of, we say, oh, we're going to do some five practices style discussion. And I think they skimp on the connecting stage where you've gone around, the students have maybe shared, and then either you've jumped in to say, this is the big goal here today, instead of the actual connecting of the solutions together. So uh, I'm glad you said that. Peg, we know that you have written a new book, The Five Practices in Practice. We are wondering, like, what specifically is this about? Is it a part two or what? uh, Could you fill us in on some details of what that book is? So there is a new series of books that are called The Five Practices in Practice. The middle school version of the book was recently published. There will be an elementary version that will be available in September and a high school version, which will be available in April 2020. And what this series seeks to do is to really take a deeper dive into the five practices. So each of the chapters focuses on a practice or two. And the first part of the chapter really tries to unpack what's involved in doing this practice And the second part of the chapter identifies three to five challenges that we have identified as being associated with the particular practice and provides suggestions on how to overcome the challenge. And what is central to each of these books are a set of videos that we made of grade level teachers in urban school districts doing the five practices. Yeah, we're really looking forward to get in and to dive in because I think, you know, as John mentioned, when we first got our hand on the book, it's like, you know, it all made a ton of sense. You know, you read the practice, the five practices and you say, 
this makes sense. And it's like, you can see some of the things that maybe were going well, like maybe some of the successes that you personally have had in your own classroom, like the things that are working and you're like, well, maybe that's why it was working. But then you look at the parts that maybe weren't working so well. And it was like, maybe the other parts sort of filled in those gaps so that, you know, I could now do it a little more consistently. However, you know, when you actually go to try to apply them, at least initially, it can be challenging. So it's now at least I've noticed and named these effective practices that I can be using in it and plan my lessons around them. But when I hit a rut, sometimes that could be sort of a challenge. So when a challenge does arise, you know, what do I do? So it sounds like this book series is going to provide us educators an opportunity to kind of dive deeper, as you mentioned, and really start to refine our own use of the five practices. So we're really excited about that. I'm super excited. It's something that as I go through the five practices, I think to the principles to actions book, and you look at the eight effective teaching practices, and I feel like the five practices is like taking those and finding a unique way, or I shouldn't say unique, but an effective way to actually implement them. So I feel like this next stage, these books will actually offer teachers this opportunity to really do that deep dive and start to refine and hone in on doing this more consistently. So we're super excited about that. Thanks. Teachers had been clamoring for years about wanting to see video and I have resisted (laughs) (laughs) and then realized that they just need images of seeing what this might look like. And they're not perfect, but they're teachers who are really doing their very best to try to help students learn mathematics. So I think there's some really compelling examples there. So if you buy the middle school book, do you get access to watch those videos? Is that how that works? Yeah, it's they've done a really nice job in the book that there are two ways to access the videos. One is you can log on to the publisher's website and have access to them. The other is you can take your phone and scan the QR code and get to it immediately. Before we wrap up here, we have just one last question. And I'm wondering, like, if a teacher who, I guess, is listening here for the first time, and they're also hearing about these resources for the first time, and are new to the five practices, and maybe even trying to, uh, thinking that they want to implement them. But, you know, many teachers are hesitant to try new things, if they're unsure about them. Could you give one piece of advice or a tip to help a new teacher get started in these resources, the five practices, and also your new book, The Five Practices in Practice. Like what could be a a good kind of starter tip do you would recommend for a teacher who's just getting into it? Well, actually, my first tip would be find somebody to go with you on the journey so you don't have to go it alone. If you're doing this for the first time, it would really be helpful to have a partner, whether the partner's in the room next door, across the city, or across the world virtually, finding somebody that you could talk to about it. The next thing I would say is find a really good task. I mean, you could pull it from one of these resources if you don't have a resource at your school that has those sorts of tasks, and just give it to kids and see what they do. I think that a lot of times teachers are scared because it's unknown. And what I've found, if teachers try it, give kids a task and see what they'll do, they're often amazed that I I hear teachers say, I really didn't think they'd be able to do it. And I think I even said that one of the first times I let my students, you know, and I say let my students because I was always in control, you know, let my students show me what they know before I tell them what they're supposed to know. Yeah, it's funny, too, when you. When you don't pre-teach students everything, they can do so much more. It's like when we actually pre-teach them all the steps and procedures, they feel like that's the only way they can go and they feel you know restricted. So having that space and that freedom to just actually think and you know to reason, to prove conjecture, like it's so important. And I think your five practices obviously are a way that we can bring that to life and allow kids to actually engage in real mathematics. I think that's right. But I think that it's also important for teachers to realize that the first time you ask a group of students to think and reason, if they haven't ever done it before, 
they're not going to love you for yeah. it. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> this is way harder. <laughs> it's going to be a little bit harder initially because no one's telling me what to do. I would say it's an acquired taste, right? So starting with a task, I'm a big fan of visual pattern tasks, almost any grade level, because everybody will see something in the pattern. And so starting with something where you can have easy entry into like, what's going on? How's it growing? What do you think the next one's going to look like? Kids will be able to do that, even if they don't have a lot of prior experience with it. And you can then begin to sort of build up more diverse repertoire of tasks. Right, right. And that's fantastic. And you're right. And I think making sure that we, you know, if I'm at home and I'm just trying to get started here, that it's like we're helping them do the first stage of the five practices for their actual implementation of the practices, because they need to anticipate this, that it's not going to be a walk in the park the first time you try, because this might be very different than what students are used to. And especially our high flyers, like those students who are, they've gamed the system the whole way, like they're very good at either memorization or they're good at following steps. And like this might not sit so well with them. So, you know, I think that's excellent advice for teachers who are looking to get started. So I'm wondering, is there any place that folks can learn more about PEG after this episode? We'll include links to your books in the show notes. Is there anywhere else that you'd like to share with the community so that they can learn more about PEG? Well, I suppose you could give them a link to that little video on the NCTM website. Yeah, we can put that in the show notes for sure. Beautiful, beautiful. So your Lifetime Achievement Award, which uh, John and I actually were there live to watch that. So congratulations again. It was really awesome to get that sort of backstory that I'll be honest, I only knew what I knew from the book. So it was really fantastic. So we'll definitely link that up in the show notes so that uh, those at home can go and have a look and learn a little bit more about PEG. So we want to thank you so much for spending some time with us this evening and essentially dedicating over an hour of your time to help the Math Moment Maker community. So we look forward to hopefully connecting with you again, either live at some conferences coming up or bringing you back on the show, if that'd be okay, maybe after the high school book is released sometime in the spring. Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's been my pleasure to talk with you guys. Thanks. Thanks so much. Have a great night. We'll talk to you soon. We want to thank Peg again for spending some time with us to share her insights with you, the Math Moment Maker community. As always, how will you reflect on what you've heard from this episode? Have you written ideas down, drawn a sketch note, sent out a tweet, called a colleague? Be sure to engage in some form of reflection to ensure that the learning sticks in your brain. Also, the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast is excited to bring you the Math Moments with Corwin Mathematics book giveaway. That's right. We're going to be giving away 10 books from Corwin Mathematics, including Peg's book, Five Practices in Practice, the Middle School Edition. Plus, you'll receive special Corwin discounts and digital downloads just for entering the draw. You can get in on the giveaway by visiting makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway by Wednesday, July 31st, 2019. Listening after Wednesday, July 31st, 2019? No sweat. We are always actively running giveaways. So check out makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway to learn about the current giveaway we have running right now. All right. Don't miss out. Dive in at makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. In order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes as they come out each week, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you're listening on. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, do us a favor and share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach an even wider audience by leaving us a review on iTunes or tweet at us your biggest takeaway being sure to tag at MakeMathMoments on Twitter. Show notes and links to resources from this episode can be found at MakeMathMoments.com forward slash episode 33. Again, that is MakeMathMoments.com forward slash episode 33. We release a new episode every Monday morning. Keep an eye out for our next episode. Well, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you.
if you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle, walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook. After completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.